0: was it, about two and a half years ago, and there was a sheep in the backyard, Louis the Sheep. I'm not sure if that's his name, but uh, our three-year-old son, although he was 18 months at the time, Asher, he, um, he named him Louis, and so we call him Louis, and there he is up there. So that's, there was a little fence separating Louis, you can see, in this kind of back paddock, I guess, and in all my wisdom, one day, I was doing some, some work in the backyard, I dropped this fence and then I came inside, I think I just showered up and I was in like shorts, I wasn't wearing a shirt or anything. I might have even been boxers, just to give you the image. And I'm standing there in the kitchen and uh, my wife Julie said, so you've got the fence down now, Are you sure Louie's not gonna just run off? Um, and I, in all my bush wisdom said, oh, Julie, they're creatures of habit, He won't go anywhere. Well, literally as I said that, Louis starts trotting off down towards the house near our clothesline. So I looked at Julie, and then she just looked at me and started laughing. So I ran out there in my briefs, and I'm running after the sheep, and he starts tearing off. And so I'm racing around our backyard after Louis the sheep. And uh, eventually I was doing these ones, you know, the big stick, and I got him to to go back up into the backyard, and eventually I got him all the way back up to the neighbours, and I shut the gate right up the back. Sheep are singularly unintelligent creatures, but... Louis fooled me, so what does that say about me? Isn't it in the wisdom of our Lord to humble us with simple creatures like a sheep? And with that, today as we come to Psalm 23, our beloved psalm, it's perhaps the most common psalm read out at funerals. This is all about our sheepishness. If you haven't been tracking with us here at Calvary, we're um, doing a little mini-series to kick off the, the new year, and we're calling it Cross, Crook and Crown, And this is the second installment. So last week we looked at the cross. This week we're looking at Psalm 23, which is the crook, the shepherd, the staff. And uh, I've preached Psalm 23 a couple of times, but as I've come through this, uh, looking at this text again, new things have just jumped out at me. So I'm not going to share what I have shared previously, which was really all about the provision of the Lord and his protection and his discipline. And all of that is in this text, right? I'm going to take a slightly different angle here. And we're going to look at this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, verse 1. If that was a question, why shall I not want? Three reasons why. Number one, restoration. Number two, consolation. And number three, satisfaction. That's our outline here as we go. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along with me. And we'll walk through these verses and points one by one. So first of all, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23, verse 1. David begins, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now think of this verse like this is setting in the stage for everything that's about to come in verses 2 through 6. And on this stage, we see two main characters. The first is the Lord, who is the shepherd. The second is David, the author, writing this psalm, and he's obviously, by extension, the sheep. Now, like Abel, like Abraham, like Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, David was a shepherd. So when he says here that the Lord is my shepherd, he is reflecting on his personal experience here. David knows intimately what it is to be a shepherd, and therefore what it is to be a sheep. What that means then for you and I, is a bit of a hard dose of reality. when if, if we want to say along with, with David that the Lord is my shepherd, we need to reckon with the reality of what it means to be a sheep. If we are sheep, that means, number one, we aren't leading. We are following. Without a shepherd, sheep tend to stray, like Louis, often getting lost, wandering into hazardous situations without realizing. Can you imagine if Louis got out on like the pack highway, not far from our house? Secondly, we aren't strong. We are weak. Sheep rely on the strength of their shepherd because they don't have sharp claws, they don't have sharp teeth. By themselves, they're completely vulnerable and defenceless. That means if we're sheep, that we aren't wise. We're foolish. Sheep often don't realize the value of what's right in front of them. Like without a shepherd rotating them from paddock to paddock, they could starve to death by gnawing all of the nutrients out of the ground and not thinking to walk 100 metres around the corner to green pastures. And if we're sheep, we aren't secure. We're in danger. The only thing standing between a sheep and certain death in the wild, particularly a place like ancient Israel, is a shepherd. So you see, on the one hand, this is a much-loved psalm. It is read out at funerals, as I said. And it evokes so much beautiful imagery here, and, and we're going to explore that. But on the other hand, how interesting is that? Because it's not exactly flattering, is it? I want to suggest today, though, that the key to seeing the beauty in this psalm is to see the beauty precisely in and through our sheepishness. So often the Bible offends us, but it does that not to insult us, but for the purpose of giving us a sober reality check so that we can understand our situation and get the help that we desperately need. I've heard one pastor explain it like this. Imagine, uh, for argument's sake, that you go to your doctor because you've got a bad headache. You come and you tell your doctor, yeah, look, I've been doing some Googling. I'm pretty sure, um, you know, this is stress-related. I haven't been sleeping well. I've been clenching my jaw. Uh, Probably a little bit of dehydration as well. Anyway, what do you got for me? And so the doctor does uh, her assessment of you and, and she kind of completes it and she looks at you and she says, look, you know, it, there may be, you may be stressed and we can talk about that, but I'm actually quite concerned. I, I don't think this is a stress-related headache. I think you have a brain tumour. Now, what's the doctor saying at that point? She's saying, number one, you've been misled by Dr. Google. Number two, you're not as strong and you're not as healthy as you might think you are. This is much more serious than just stress. Number three, you're not as smart as you think you are because you completely misdiagnosed this problem. And number four, you're not as secure as you might think. You're in real danger and we actually need to get you into surgery now. Now what if you, in response to this doctor, piped up and said, how offensive is that? How dare you deny my authentic self? And so you storm on out of her clinic. Well, she might be inclined to write pride next to brain tumor on your death certificate. The point is, the doctor's not offending you to harm you, but to heal you, right? With the truth of what is going on in your body. Now, if that's true of a doctor in our bodies, why, why can't we see that truth when it comes to our souls and the Lord? Psalm 23 is a humbling psalm. But there is beauty here as we keep on reading because of the truth of the remedy. So let's look again now at verse 1 and change the emphasis from the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, to the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord here is not the generic title for God, Elohim. It's the personal name of God, Yahweh. So the kind of relationship David is describing here is a personal relationship. But remember, that personal name of God that was handed originally to Moses was for all of the nation Israel. So again, to go back to something that we discussed last week, What we have here in verse 1 is something personal from David's experience, yes, but it's also something more than that. It's also something covenantal. This is covenant language. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God. Psalm 23, 1, my shepherd. David is speaking personally here. But there is also this sense in which it is on behalf of Israel. So this tension we're going to see all the way through. One example of this is here in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Look at the emphasis now as we get to the end. The same Hebrew phrase there is found in Deuteronomy 2, 5-7, to where Moses says to all of Israel, The Lord your God has blessed you. He knows you're going through the great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. You shall not want. Same phrase. Then later on in Deuteronomy 28, we read, Moses warning Israel, saying, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. You shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness, lacking everything. And it gets Pretty R-rated after that, if you keep on reading. In other words, not lacking is a way of describing God's covenantal blessings to the nation Israel. When the Lord is your shepherd, when the Lord is not your shepherd, you do lack, and that would be a curse. So, to go back to this list, if we don't have a shepherd, then we lack everything. Because we are followers, we lack direction. We are weak, we lack strength to protect ourselves. We are foolish, we lack the wisdom to know what we need. We are in danger, we lack safety and security. To make this a little clearer, Psalm 23.1 has a chilling, a chilling cross-reference in Psalm 49.14. Like sheep that are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd. In other words, without a covenant relationship in which the Lord is our shepherd, death is the default. And isn't this what we looked at last week for those of us who are here? Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross. It begins with David's experiences, but then we get going and we're like, whoa, he's talking about stuff that does not apply to his life. He's projecting beyond himself. And then we see that great turnaround in the resurrection that brings about the ultimate contrast from death to life. Psalm 22, John 10:11. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So that Psalm 23, Hebrews 4, 9 to 11, Jesus is also now the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equipping us with every good thing that we may do his will. Let me put it this way. If there were no Psalm 22, there would be no Psalm 23, there would only be Psalm 49. No good shepherd, no great shepherd, only death as your shepherd. So the beauty of this psalm is in its reflection of this deep, personal, covenantal relationship that God has with his people. So to have a harsh reality doctor check one more time with you all, if we cannot say along with David that the Lord is my shepherd, then nothing in this chapter applies to us This psalm is grounded in covenant. And for more on what that means, catch up last week online. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why shall I not want? Great question. The first reason we have here is because of restoration. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Notice the pronouns here. He makes, he leads, he restores, he leads his name. God is the one doing all of the work here, which is in keeping with the shepherd metaphor, because, again, we're the sheep. And what does Isaiah say about sheep? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're like Louis, the sheep. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But O, to grace how great a debtor, for daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. We have here in verses 2 and 3 a description of how the great shepherd binds himself to his sheep by taking the initiative at every point in our walk. Now, it's not hard to imagine How David, as he's penning this psalm, drew inspiration from his own experiences as he sat there, no doubt, with some sort of a scene like this before him. These beautiful word pictures we read here of green pastures and still waters. This again is personal for David, but it's also a corporate thing uh, as there is precedent here with the terms used for the nation Israel. Exodus 15, 13. The people you redeemed, you led in merciful love. You guided them under your protection to your holy pasture. Or well, Numbers ten thirty three, which speaks of waters of resting places. That's the literal translation of still waters, waters of resting places. It casts our mind back to what the Lord sought for Israel in the wilderness as He was guiding them to the promised land. Or to go back even further, this idea of waters of resting places it takes us back to Genesis chapter two. And what we read there about God resting on the seventh day from all of his work. In Genesis 2.15, he placed Adam and Eve into his rest on the seventh day to live. So you might say then that these word pictures here in Psalm 23 of green pastures and still waters, they are David's way of, of trying to describe how God shepherds his people through life to that place of rest that was lost in Adam and Eve. This is a picture then of restoration, of a returning, a re establishing humanity to the place and the space that they were always created to be in, namely God's rest. We were made to live in God's rest. That was certainly true in a literal way for the physical land covenant with the nation Israel. But metaphorically as well, we can extend that here. And think of it for us as though we're all wandering through this wilderness of life, trying to find a land flowing with milk and honey, so to speak, trying to taste the transcendent. Only oftentimes we are doing that with the limited things of this world, aren't we? Limited things which can never satisfy that eternal hunger that we have. This idea is expressed in a book by French philosopher Albert Camus, known as, uh, goes by the title, The Fall. This book was published in, I think it was the late 50s, just after World War II, uh, a little period of the 20th century that W.H. Auden, in a famous poem he wrote, called The Age of Anxiety, because of, basically, you know, you're coming out of two successive world wars, and social unrest was just at an all-time high. There was a lot of anxious um, people out there. Camus writes The Fall during this time in Paris, And his novel is basically, it's an exploration of this social anxiety, uh, processing the guilt and the judgment that was going on at the time. And the main character is this lawyer from Paris, who just confesses all of the things he's done in very candid language. And in one confession, he writes this striking statement. Listen to this. Despairing of love and of chastity, I at last bethought myself of debauchery a substitute for love, which quiets the laughter, restores silence, and above all, confers immortality. Because I longed for eternal life. I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. In the morning, to be sure, my mouth was filled with the bitter taste of the mortal state. But for hours on end, I had soared in bliss. This guy's not a Christian at all, by the way. Uh, But is that not a candid confession of how we all look for the transcendent in the offerings of this world? You may not identify with what this Parisian lawyer was doing, but we all have things in life that we turn to. We all have our green pastures. We all have our still waters of preference that we eat and drink from in an attempt to restore our souls because we feel something is missing, something is lacking. The only problem is if our pastures or our waters are the things of this world, then sure, we may find bliss in them for a couple of hours, but eventually the hangover will come, and with it the bitter taste of the mortal state. In other words, if you try and feel the hunger and thirst of your soul with the things of this world, eventually you'll eat the green pastures down to the dust and you'll drink the still waters dry. You see, we're all wandering here in life, and we're all driven in certain directions to do certain things. I don't think that's a question. We're all moving with purpose. There's a reason why you woke up. There's a reason why you're sitting in this chair right now. We all have shepherds that lead and guide the decisions we make, but if God is not the ultimate shepherd, regulating all of the other things that we do and say and speak and feel and think, then we will never find the ultimate resting place. That's the story of Israel's aimless wandering in the past, isn't it, as they fashioned idols along the way. Now, here's the, here's the challenge, because idols aren't necessarily a bad thing in themselves. Sex and alcohol were the shepherds of that Parisian lawyer, both good gifts from God. Sex is on page one of the Bible. Nothing wrong with it. But they're no promised land. Like, if that's all we're shooting for, we're going to be frustrated. Augustine, the great 4th century uh, bishop of North Africa, expressed it like this on page 1 of his uh, autobiography, The Confessions. O God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Now, for Augustine, this restlessness of the human heart is what we might call anxiety today. Uh, Now, look, a little anxiety is a healthy thing, right? It shows that we're a caring person deep down inside, that we actually you know, worry about things that are happening to us and to others around us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he bears the anxieties of all the churches. A little anxiety is a healthy thing, but when anxiety grows into this whole-hearted restlessness of the soul, where it's all-consuming and it's crippling us, Augustine says when that happens, it's because we've taken something finite and we've made it into an ultimate thing. We've taken something that this world offers Something likely very good. This is the challenge of idolatry. Something likely very good. Pleasure, leisure, friends, recognition, a parent's love for their children. Like, what parent is happier than their most unhappy child, (laughs) right? We all have things that lead and direct and guide us in life. But when we take those things and we make them into the ultimate things that regulate all of our heart's affections and mind's attention, We end up putting the eternal weight of our expectations onto it and it can never deliver. So we get frustrated. We get restless. We get anxious. We continue to wander in the wilderness looking for home and we never find it. Let me give you an example from my own life because I don't want to be overly, I've heard too many sermons that have been overly simplistic on anxiety and I don't appreciate it. Let me just be careful here. I don't know what experiences anyone here has had with anxiety. So let me talk about myself, okay? I never really understood what anxiety was until these last 18 months of my life. I remember coming home one day, I don't know, early last year, and I said to my wife, Julie, who's a medical doctor, if you don't know, help me understand what's going on with me, because between 2 and 4 p.m. every single day, I feel sick. (laughs) I have something in my throat, like a golf ball. I try to swallow it. I'm drinking like a liter of water, and it's not going down. Uh, What's going on? I just, what is it? And she asked me a bunch of questions, and we talked through it, and she goes, Oh, sweetie, you are so out of touch with your body. <laughs> I was experiencing textbook physical symptoms of anxiety. Now, there were reasons for that. I had lots of stuff going on in my life at the time, but spiritually, what had happened to me was that I had taken my eyes off of the shepherd, and I put my focus on my circumstances and my ability to see myself through what it was I was going through. But I'm a sheep, right? Is that going to work out well for me? I wasn't as strong as I thought. I wasn't as smart as I thought. I obviously wasn't even aware of what was going on. My body was telling me there was something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. But I'll never forget when I made the spiritual connection. I was sitting again on our brown couch another day, um, lamenting about some things that were going on to Julie, when I said something like this. I said, look, I know this isn't theologically correct, but I want you to know how I feel. I feel like I can't get a break here. Like I'm trying to do the noble thing. I'm trying to be gracious. I'm trying to forgive. I'm trying to be kind. I'm trying to be aware of my witness as a Christian. But sometimes the hammer needs to smack people where it hurts, and I'm fed up with it. And Julie's like, yeah, okay, David, but you don't need to be the one to swing that hammer. <laughs> and... uh like the sheep that I am, I said something providentially stupid. I said, yeah, well, he just takes his time, doesn't he? Now, Julie could have scolded me at that point, but she didn't. I remember she stopped what she was doing. Um, she doesn't wear glasses, but it was one of those moments where she just kind of looks, you know. She, she put down her phone. I think she had a phone. She put down her phone or something, and she, she looked over me, and she said, David, imagine if Asher our three-year-old son at the time, imagine if Asher was going through something at preschool and he really needed your help. As his dad, what would you want him to believe? Straight away, I got teary. I remember looking up at the roof so gravity would hold those little drops in my skull and uh, she wouldn't see. I got moved because I know with the love that I have for my son that I would move the entire world to make sure he knows how much I love him. Now, if that's me, a dumber than Louis Sheep, imagine what it's like for the Lord. I had taken my eyes off of the shepherd, right? I'd become so lost in my worries and my circumstances that I'd forgotten that I have a loving Father in heaven who sees me in my situation, who wants me to know that he is there. He wants me to know that he loves me, even though I may not feel like it. He's like, I've got you, David. You're going to be okay. That was a restoration of my soul. I, f- I physically felt empowered when I made that connection, and I felt lighter when I got up off that couch. So things were still happening, but I didn't feel lost. Life may be hard for you, but we can still know the rest of our Lord, even in the crazy. But practically speaking, how do we learn that, or how do we lean into that? Well, look with me here at verse 3. The Lord is my shepherd, he restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Here we have an allusion back to Psalm nineteen. where David wrote the Torah of Yahweh has integrity restoring the soul. In other words, the way the Lord seems to restore David's soul is by meditation on the Scriptures, which tell of the Lord's righteousness. So this imagery then in Psalm 23, it actually takes us back to Psalm 1 with this imagery that we have um, of a tree by streams of water. Let me read this. Uh, Like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season... And its leaf does not wither, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's what God says of people who meditate and delight in His word. You are like a tree planted by waters. And notice when you read there in Psalm 1, that's an evergreen tree. Because a tree planted by waters is a tree with access to a life giving source. And so it is for our souls as we have access to the waters of God's word. But that doesn't mean we're just reading God's word. That's not what Psalm 1 is talking about. It means feeding on God's word. It means meditation. Now, what is meditation? Well, in some Eastern traditions, meditation involves emptying the mind. I don't think that's either wise or safe because what's going to come in and fill your head? But in Jewish thought, meditation wasn't about emptying your mind. It was about filling your mind with one or two simple truths and meditating on them so that we see the Lord, not just with the eyes of our head, but the eyes of our heart, as Paul says in Ephesians. But how do we do that? Let me give you another story. It's 20 years ago, which makes me sound old. 20 years ago, I remember walking into my friend's house on Barber Street in Gunnedah, where I grew up, and I walked in the sunroom in the front room there, and... uh, my mate's grandmother was there. She's gone to be with the Lord now. She was sitting there on a couch. Her Bible was closed. Her glasses were on the Bible. And she was just had her hands clasped and her eyes closed. I just assumed she was praying. And I remember talking to her and I said, hey, how are you going? She's like, oh, hey, hello, David. Yes, how are you going? Sweet British lady. And we just started chatting. And I said, so I'm trying to figure out how like, to read my Bible every day because it's hard work. Can you tell me at your age, like, how do you go with reading the Bible and prayer and stuff like that? And she said, oh, I could read the Bible all day if my eyes didn't get dry. I could pray all day, but my mind tends to wander. Tell you what, though, David, I'm learning just to sit still and be with the Lord. And I didn't even know that was a category of something to do. I'm just like, what is that? She goes, you just be quiet and just stay still and, and listen. After all these years, it reminds me of Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Be still, and know that I am God. Yep, I know who you are, God. No, 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 be still. Okay, I'll be, ah, shh, be still, and know that I am God. How hard is it for us to be still today? With all of the noise and the instantaneity around us. Claim to fame, grade four, I got best actor, I beat everyone in grade five and six in all of Canada for playing the role of an ADHD character named Danny Dole. And I had to freeze in these moments where my good and bad conscience were talking either side of me. And my, um, my parents' friends came up to me afterwards and said, ''We have never seen you stay that still before, David.'' <laughs> I find it incredibly hard to stay still. How much harder is it today when we have these things all around us buzzing at us for our attention? You know, when you go out and have dinner, I wish I could say this is never me, but you look at other people and they're just having a good expensive dinner together and they're texting. They're with each other, but so are the 20 people on either side of the table that they're interacting with on social media. It's not exactly quality time, is it? If we are to build intimacy with one another, with someone, we need to just be still and just be with them. So when it comes to your time with the Lord this year, why not set yourself the discipline of being still? Every day, if you can't do every day, at least a couple of times a week. No people, no music, no prayer, no Bible. I want to disclaim that I'm assuming you are already doing some of those things, okay? But just a stillness, just a silence, just a meditating on something that you know to be true of God in Scripture. And before you start thinking, that's not really my kind of Christianity, I'm a bit too Spiro for me, Remember what Augustine said. Everyone does this with everything else other than God all the time. So why not make it him? So verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Because he's the shepherd leading us to his rest, which is the restoration of our souls. The second reason we see here is uh, consolation. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, verse 4, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and and your staff, they comfort me. In ancient times, you would build a city on a hill so that you could have the high ground advantage against attacking enemies. Valleys were dangerous places because that's where you were left exposed and that's where you were left vulnerable. They could be rocky, difficult places to traverse, and often it's where the enemies lurked within the shadows. And for sheep, it's where predators like lions and bears would jump out at an opportune moment and pick you off one by one. Now, understandably, it's in the darkness of the valley that sheep can get lost. Something startles them and they run in a certain direction and they don't know how to find their way back. They lose sight of their shepherd. So too it is often in times of darkness, in the valleys of life, when suffering and loss are experienced by people and they stray from the Lord. Like, how could a good God, a just God, a loving God, allow me to go through fill in the blank? Or, or how could they allow someone I love to go through that? Or for many people, how could he allow this world to be the trash heap that it is? Like, turn on the news for five minutes. That's a question that has been asked as long as there have been people to ask questions. Do you want to talk about that? Please come have a chat after. But it's also true that just as many sheep find their shepherd in the darkness of a valley because it's these moments where they paradoxically see the light for the first time that they aren't their own shepherd. It's like that harsh reality check with the doctor. You know, They thought they knew the way that they were going. They thought that they were strong, but something has happened to them. Something befalls them, and they realize, whoa, I am weak. I'm not as smart as I thought I was. I don't know where I'm going. I'm not as secure. I need help. They see the shepherd. They bleat out. And as John 10, 27 says, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Can you relate to that at all? Like here in in this verse, verse 4, there is a pronoun shift from he to you. Third person to second person. David's getting closer in the valley. It's not the time to run away. It's the time to, to lean in. I've got uh, another illustration here, but I don't mean to belittle the seriousness of what we're talking about, but I think it serves the point. My beautiful little girl, 21 months, Shiloh, she's terrified of flies. Not a big deal for us, but for her, it's a big deal. And anything that looks like a fly uh, just freaks her out. It could just be a little black particle on the floor. She'll sit there, if it's a dead fly, 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 and she's just paralyzed, and she's just freaked, and then she starts crying, and she gets a little, like, worked up. It's not enough for me to go sweep up the fly and say, you'll be right, I've tried that, it doesn't work. Um, I have to get rid of the fly, and then pick her up, and she bear hugs me with all she's got. She needs to cling to me, she needs to hold on to me in those moments. This is comfort, this is consolation. That's what we need to be doing in the darkness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, tools of discipline and protection. They bring me in and they keep me by your side. They comfort me, says David. Did you know that God can use suffering in your life to bring you closer to him? Well, not only that, did you know or did you recognize, verse 3, the paths of righteousness? They lead into the valley of the shadow of death, verse 4. It's not either or. Now, it's not that God delights in our suffering. Jesus wept before the tomb of Lazarus, John 11. He didn't want the cup in Gethsemane, Luke 22. You know, ever since becoming a dad, I, uh, I keep a notepad of things that I learned, I've learned as a dad and I just put very short little dot points on it. One of the entries that I put on there, not long ago, was the increased difficulty of saying goodbye. And it's interesting, like the weirdest things will trigger this for me. I can be watching a rom-com, which I've been known to do from time to time. There can be a transition scene in there, right? That's uh, got nothing to do with the pre-grade drama that you're watching. It's just a throwaway transition scene when like a parent's saying goodbye to a kid as they get in their car to drive off to college or something like that. It's a comedy, it's not meant to be emotional, but that will hit me because I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to be maybe doing that with my child one day. I'm going to be saying goodbye to my little baby as they drive off to college. Humans were never meant to say goodbye to each other. We were made for relationships and to rest in the security of those loving relationships. And death is the ultimate goodbye, isn't it? But this is where the good news of Jesus comes in, and I want to tell you, and I want to fight for this until they put me in the ground. This is where it is so utterly unique. You do not get what we're about to see in any other belief or worldview out there, even non-belief. Take one example, Hinduism, where suffering is seen as the result of you doing something wrong. This is, this is called karma, right? The response is basically do good deeds. As a creed, what goes around comes around. Take Islam, where suffering is seen as the will of Allah. So the response is basically salute and execute. It's fatalism. As a creed, what will be, will be. Take secular humanism, where suffering is seen as a result of chance. There's no rhyme or reason to it. So the response is basically avoid it at all costs. Distract it, drug it pathologize it, surgically excise it, euthanize it, do anything but live with it, out of sight, out of mind. It's minimization. Make the most of life while you can. How you deal with suffering says a lot about what you really believe about yourself. The Christian view of suffering is completely different to all of this. It doesn't preach karma, it doesn't preach fatalism, it doesn't preach minimization, it preaches walk through the valley of the shadow of death. To walk implies progress. This is a movement through trial to triumph, through hurt because of hope, because of the consolation of the shepherd. This is why we, we can't read and understand Psalm 23 without reading and understanding Psalm 22 first. Humans were never meant to say goodbye. Goodbye. But the God-forsaken cry of dereliction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22.1 That was the moment when Jesus said goodbye to the Father so that we wouldn't have to. Just like the Lord walked alone through those carved carcasses in Genesis 15 when he cut the covenant with Abraham, that was a one-way walk from God alone. So Jesus at Calvary walked through the valley of the shadow of death alone on the cross. Like, if you want something to meditate on, meditate on that tonight. He was alone so that you wouldn't have to be. He was forsaken so that you would be embraced. He died in eternal death so that you can live an eternal life. And let me just be honest here, because sometimes it's frankly really frustrating to come here and preach. It's frustrating for me, because if you're going through stuff right now, or have been, or will in the future... These words and everything I'm saying to you out of this microphone might just sound like Christian platitudes. I get that because I've sat in that seat and I've thought it too. But this is why it's not enough to just listen to a preacher boy up the front. I can't console you. Who do you think I am? I'm dumber than Louis. He can. Because even though we may not know all of the reasons for the crosses that we bear in this life, we can look at the cross of Jesus Christ, and be still and meditate on what that means for us and trust God when he says, follow me, I've been there, I know the way through. You don't get that with anything else in this world. It's blasphemy for Islam. It's nonsense to a Hindu. It's utterly unique to this text before us. The Lord is our shepherd. The promise isn't that there won't be trials. The promise is that there can be triumph through them. You can walk through the valley and fear no evil, for he is with you. And, and that builds, uh, over time, that builds intimacy and an expectation, mind you, to be with the Lord one day in the new heavens and the new earth when the former things have passed away and there will be no more tears. And that leads us now to our final brief section here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Restoration, consolation, finally, satisfaction. Verses 5 and 6. David concludes his psalm singing, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, here we have more vivid word pictures describing how the Lord provides for us. It's really a neat way that David finishes off this psalm because it just dovetails us right back to verse 1, I shall not want. Why? Because look at the excess we've got, right? It's lavish. It's overflowing. It's more than we need. This is, it's almost understated to say, a, a picture of satisfaction. Now, there's a lot here, but let me just be selective and make three quick observations. First, let's talk about this table here. It's a picture of celebration, but notice it's not just in the future when we finally get out of this dark valley that we'll be chilling out around this table. It's right in the middle of it, in the presence of my enemies, writes David. See, it's not just that God wants us to trust him to walk with us through trials. He wants us to actually go further and rejoice with him in that process. Now, is David just out of touch with reality here? No, because here's the great paradox of Psalm 23. The Lord is the only shepherd who knows what it's like to be a sheep. The Lord is the only shepherd who knows what it's like to be a sheep. Again, this is everything we looked at last week in Psalm 22. But there's a good exercise if you want to do some homework. Compare the enemies of Psalm 22 with the enemies here in Psalm 23. That should go a long way to helping us realize What people like James mean when they say things like this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In a moment, we're going to take and eat from the Lord's table. And so we're going to come back to this. But now I want to look at quickly this word house. Psalm 23 begins in a field and it ends in a house. This is where it all ends up. Restoration, consolation, now, satisfaction, his goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. Who can enter into this house? Who sits enthroned within this house? Come back next week and Dan will talk and walk us through Psalm 24, the Psalm of the Crown. But for now, I just want to point out what this house is. It's not a holiday house by the beach. When David talks about a house here, he's talking about the tabernacle, that tent- like structure that the Israelites um, moved around throughout their wilderness wanderings in the desert. It was the dwelling place of God, and in the tabernacle was his altar in the middle where different offerings were made. Fast forward now a thousand years to John chapter two, and Jesus says to the Jews in front of him, "Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days." and they're like, uh are you serious, bro it, like took us." 46 years to build the second temple. Who do you think you are? But he was referring, the text says, to himself. To dwell in the house of the Lord is to dwell with the Lord. This is satisfaction in the presence of God. Once again, it's the rest of Eden that we were made for. Finally, notice here the word forever. David says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I said earlier that human beings are made for relationships, we aren't made to say goodbye to each other. Well, the picture here is of a place where there are no more goodbyes. Because here's the thing. The reason why we get anxious about things in life is because our fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that we love the most. Our fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that we love the most. It's easy for me to be anxious about my children or for you to be anxious about somebody or something that you dearly, dearly love. Because the more you love that thing or person, the more you will fear that you will lose it, right? But if the Lord is your number one, if he is your ultimate shepherd, your greatest love, your greatest joy, then you don't need to fear The ultimate, because you'll never lose him. This is a forever home. And nothing, we are told, nothing, 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 Romans 8, height, depth, angels, demons, life, death, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Because he himself is the forever sanctuary, Isaiah 8. No saying goodbyes. So restoration, consolation satisfaction. Such is promised to all who say along with David, the Lord is my shepherd. Let's pray and then we'll have the meal together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being uh, loving enough to humble us with a psalm like Psalm 23. That just tells us like it is. We're sheep, you're the shepherd, there is no other. Lord, as we Go about our lives uh, with all the buildings and hurried streets and moving cars and the quietness of the suburbs from time to time, the solitude of our own bedrooms. Lord, I just pray whatever space we're in, that you would discipline us to be still, that we may not be restless, that we may not be anxious for our circumstances, but content knowing that we lack nothing in Christ. Would that wash over anything that's going on, I ask Lord, help us to see our story in the light of your story, that our daily lives may be marked as a people who are not merely striving for success or personal comfort or anything like that, but those who seek the city whose architect and builder is God. Lord, we've learned today that you restore us, you console us, you satisfy us, and I just ask that you would press this into our heads and into our hearts May we feed on what this means for us today, and may we be nourished by it, that we may know and recognize in the pastures and in the valleys your voice, never strain from your side, so that we may come into your house and hear those words as they're written, well done, good and faithful, enter into my rest. And Lord, we commit all of this to you in the name of that good shepherd, that great shepherd, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel Newcastle. If you would like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.